If you have a Bible, you can open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to get there in just a second. I was thinking this week that I felt like God was asking me just to remind us of some basic things about the Christian faith. And he brought to remembrance this verse in Philippians chapter 3, which says in verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me, indeed, it's not grievous, but for you, it is safe. He says, it's not a pain for me to have to write the same stuff to you over and over and rehearse some of the same fundamental truths, and for you, it creates safety. One of the things that's helpful, I think, about being connected to a local church is just that you're plugged into relationships and you're plugged into a uh, a leader, hopefully, that will remind you of the fundamentals and go back over things over and over because we tend to lose focus. Anybody ever noticed you can lose focus sometimes on, on the simple truths of stuff? And so Paul says, I'm going to write the same stuff to you, and it doesn't bore me to do that, and it creates safety for you. And then he describes some stuff. He says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision." Um, so when he says beware of evil workers, he's most likely talking about the fact that there sometimes are people that will take the grace of God and use it as a, as a license to their flesh, as, a, as an excuse to sin. Now, God loves you whether you sin or not. God's not mad at you. But if you view grace as some sort of excuse to just live in a whole bunch of sin, then you have, you've misunderstood grace. Because what grace does is it produces an inward change to where we want to serve God. How many of you will testify that you, you want to serve God? You may not do it perfectly. So I, it's not that we never struggle with sin as Christians, but it's that in the innermost part of us, we want to serve God. And if you, if you want to just go out and do a whole bunch of crazy stuff, you probably don't understand grace the way that you should. So he says, beware of those evil workers. But then he says on the other side, there's another ditch, beware of the concision. And what he means by that is beware of the circumcision. These are people, the Judaizers that were coming in behind Paul and saying, uh, uh, you've got to add a whole bunch of stuff to Jesus. It's great that you got saved by grace, but make sure now that you, you get circumcised and you keep the law of Moses and eat the right foods and hang out with the right people and pray the right prayers and come to the right church and give the right amount of money and all this kind of stuff, and that's how God will bless you, and that's what God will, you know, and if you don't do that, God will be mad at you. And so trying to add stuff to Jesus is called legalism. It's when we think in our minds that our human efforts are earning us something from God. On one side of the ditch is when we use grace as a license to sin. We don't want to be in that ditch. But on the other side is this ditch where we think we're trying to impress God with our human activity and, and how much we've prayed and fasted. And he says, beware of, of both of those things. And so part of, the, part of the job of a minister is to remind us of those two ditches and just to stay in the middle. And the middle looks like this. It's that, that good works are a fruit of salvation, not a root. I do good works because I'm saved. My good works don't save me. And we can't ever get confused about that. Everybody okay with that? We get confused about it, then we're 
we're in trouble. He also says, beware of dogs. I don't particularly know what that means, except that Andrew Womack tells this story that one time he was doing some door-to-door evangelism, and he, it was kind of frustrating because it wasn't going so well, and he goes up to this door, and a guy answers, and he says, praise God, it's great to finally meet a Christian while I'm out here. And the guy said, what makes you think I'm a Christian? And he said, well, you have a scripture verse here in your window. And he says, I do not. What scripture verse? And he came out his door and he looked at that. And, and Andrew said, well, that's, that's Philippians 3, 2. Beware of dogs. <laughs> and he said, after that, the guy slammed the door in his face, I think. But, but he was trying something different. <laughs> uh, you know... This doesn't have anything to do with anything. But one time I was, I was doing this door-to-door evangelism and we were, I, I organized this thing where we were giving away free bread to people. Because if you give away free, something free, a lot of times people listen to you. And so we were just giving away free bread to different people and, and offering to pray for them and telling them about Jesus and stuff. And I'd combine this with a treasure hunt, which if you don't know what that is, it's you just pray beforehand. You ask God to show you some people that you're going to run into and some things about them so that you can minister to them. And, uh, you know, and so God will give you impressions and clues about, well, you might run into a person with a blue shirt, a person with a shoulder problem or whatever. And so you write the stuff down and then you can uh, uh, show it to people and then you're just like, oh, this is my problem. And it's, it's pretty cool. So uh, I got to this door, and I had this list, and I, I um, was talking to the lady, and I handed her the list, and I had several things on it. The things I remember were that were uh, uh, chronic knee pain, a relative in the hospital, and then something about wanting to take a trip to France. And so I gave this list to this lady, and I said, this is a weird question, but does anything on this list mean anything to you? And she just started weeping right there on the, in the door, and usually that's a good sign. <laughs> and so I said, I said, what, what's going on? And she looked at me like I was crazy, and she's like, what is this, the list? And I'm like, well, you know, I prayed. I asked God, you know, about some people that I was going to run into, and he gave me some stuff. I thought I'd meet somebody with these, these things. And she said, she said, I have chronic knee pain from when I was at a cheerleader, and I've been sitting here praying because my mother-in-law was in the hospital, and she just died, and I was praying to God, and I was asking God to send me somebody to prove to me that he was real, and I thought, wow, well, that's really something, and I said, well, we're the, I mean, we, God's real. He answered your prayer. We're here. Can we pray for you? And so we prayed for her, and her knees got healed, and more importantly, her heart got healed. And, and so and she realized God was real and, and loved her, and it was really encouraging. So that doesn't have anything to do with my message, but I thought about it. And so just be encouraged. God's real. So what, what's the point? Let's look at this verse in Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, verse 9 says, Don't be carried away with different and strange doctrines. Everybody say strange doctrines. 
So, so you don't want to be carried away with those. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace and not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. He says, don't get caught up in a lot of, of weird stuff. Instead, focus on the fundamentals, and the fundamentals are the grace of God. He says, it's good for your heart to be established in this doctrine called grace. There are tons of doctrines in the body of Christ. I love studying theology. I love all the various doctrines. I love the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I love the fire of God. I love the move of the Spirit. But he doesn't actually say that it's good for your heart to be established by speaking in tongues or, or the fire of God or anything like that. He says, he says it's good for your heart to be established in grace. And I can look back on my life and I can realize that when I was growing up, I had a lot of good teaching about faith. I understood some stuff about faith. I understood some stuff about the move of the Holy Spirit. And I loved Jesus. I was taught some stuff about the end times. I, was, I, I, I understood a little bit about the different covenants. And, and I can see all that. But as I look at the course of my life, I've realized that the thing that brought stability and long-term success between me and my relationship with God was this simple concept of basing my relationship with God on grace. That's what, that's what established me. It's not that any of these other things don't matter, but it's that grace is the foundation. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, I laid a foundation as a wise master builder. And he describes the foundation as Jesus Christ. What he means is the finished work of the cross is the foundation upon which all other theologies must be built. If we're starting from some other place and we're reasoning from some other place, we're going to be in trouble. Many people have good theology about healing or about uh, you know, receiving promises from God, but their foundation is their own work rather than grace. And that foundation being off will make it difficult for you to receive all the other stuff that you believe. Paul says you got to be careful how you build on that foundation. When he says that, he's not really talking about building ministries. Now, I mean, I think you can use it to teach that, but he's actually saying you got to be careful how you build your theology, how you think about God. Is your theology built on, on something other than the finished work that Jesus did on the cross? Is that central to your life? And you might think, well, yeah, it is. But I'm telling you, there's so many things in church and in my life. I mean, I've been, to, I'm not trying to be critical, but I've, I've been in entire conferences where the, where the name of Jesus is mentioned very little. Because we've, we've thought somehow that, that that's, that's the foundation, so it's basic. So we got to move on from that, and we got to grasp these profound concepts. Well, I'm telling you if, you, if your foundation isn't the finished work of the cross, you have zero hope of, of comprehending anything beyond that. 
Everything must be filtered through what we call a high Christology or a Christocentric view of, of the world, which just means Jesus-focused. He says, don't get carried away with strange doctrines. What are strange doctrines? All those are are just things that take our eyes off of Jesus and put them on either our performance, what we're doing, or on some sort of secret knowledge. Now, I'm, I'm going to say some stuff here, and I'm not, I'm, I actually think this is good marketing, so I'm not actually criticizing this, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of church marketing and, and teaching marketing that is done saying things like, 10 things your church never taught you. Anybody ever seen that? Or like, or like you know, this, this, your, your pastor doesn't want you to know about blank. Okay, anybody ever seen something like that? Okay, so what they're, what they're doing, it's really, it's good marketing, because when you see that, you think, oh, my pastor doesn't want me to know about that. I better read it. <laughs> Just being real. That's why I don't, I mean, I don't ever bash, like, books and stuff, because even if I think it's wrong, if I tell you not to read it, half of you are going to go out and buy it the next minute. So I don't, I don't, that's not good. So the point of that is they're just trying to get clicks. They're trying to get people to read stuff, and I understand that. But do you understand that the way Christianity really functions is that, is that there's nothing new under the sun. And if somebody's teaching something that you genuinely can't hear anybody anywhere else, then that's a problem. Okay, that's, that's not healthy. <laughs> That, that means that they're, they're off on some sort of rabbit trail that, that you know, there's not any new doctrine. In the, in the, the church has been going for 2,000 years. There's nuances, and there's new ways of explaining things. But there's not any new doctrine. And I, uh, there's new-to-you doctrine. And what tends to happen is you're introduced to, like you might come here and I might teach something, you might think, I've never heard that before. How many of you had that happen? Okay. I've never heard that. That's great. But that doesn't mean I'm the only person saying it. It just means I'm the first person you've heard say it. What I've learned, and so I didn't, I didn't know this really growing up, and I thought, I thought oh, you know, because I was in church and my whole life, and... And I, I wasn't really taught a whole bunch, except just try to be moral and, and love Jesus. And when I started to learn some things from some different teachers, I began to think, wow, these people, it's like they're the only people that know this. But now I've, I've grown a little bit, and I've read a whole bunch, and I've realized uh, that, that really the stuff like, like some of my mentors, like Andrew Womack and stuff, all he's done is taken grace theology and make it intelligible. He just explains it better than probably anybody on the planet. And that's what's made him so successful. But he's not, he's not teaching anything that the Reformation didn't teach us and anything that we didn't learn, you know, actually in the early, early church. So we've got we've to not buy into this stuff about where there's, there's some sort of, I'm going to get some kind of special revelation. And a lot of people, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to be mean, but people make a lot of money selling books about, oh, you know, there's... 
this many numbers and, and there's like numerology and it's, it's a bunch of weird stuff. And, and it's entertaining. And we tend to get bored in church. And I think one of the reasons we get bored is that nobody ever teaches us that you can like lay hands on the sick and prophesy and all that stuff. If, if you learn that, I mean, if you're bored, then go find a sick person and pray for them. But, but if the, the trouble is people aren't engaged in the, in the battle, and so they want something to entertain them, and we get carried away with some strange doctrines. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not any value to some of this stuff. There's these fads. I'm not that old, but I've been in church my whole life, and there are these fads that come through. Anybody remember when the prayer of Jabez came through? Remember? So, so the prayer of Jabez, I mean, it's not bad. I mean, I read that book. It actually helped me, and it increased my ability to witness to people and stuff because he said you ought to pray that God would give you opportunities to witness, and, and it was positive. But, I mean, there was a song about it, and it was, everybody was praying the prayer of Jabez and all this. And, and, but you, you guys recognize, okay, that's like one obscure verse in the middle of First Chronicles. And so building a whole theology on that, that's, that's not how you build theology. If the foundation of your faith is the prayer of Jabez, I'm not, I'm not mad at you, I love you, but I'm telling you that's, that's not the foundation. The foundation is grace. It's good for a heart to be established with, with grace. Everybody Okay. In Acts 26, 26, Paul, let's, let's turn over there. I like this verse a lot. He's talking to the king and he says, he says, For the king knows of these things before whom I speak freely, for I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden for you from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. The thing about Christianity is it's not done in a corner. It's been around for 2,000 years. And there are public witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. There's, I mean, lots of people are saying, saying this. It's not hidden. There's not a secret knowledge. None of it's a secret. If you come get counseling from me, all I'm going to do is tell you the same stuff I tell you from the pulpit. I mean, I'll help you apply it to your life, but I don't have any secret sauce beyond what I tell you up here. I'm serious. I give you, I give you the best I've got up here. And if you just listen to it and apply it, I mean, I'm, you can come to counseling and stuff, but I mean, it's, it's going to be the same thing. This stuff is not done in a corner. So the first century church, they, they got caught up in this thing called Gnosticism. And it was, for them, it was, the, so the word Gnostic means that you know something. If you're agnostic, you say, I don't know. Like if you're agnostic about God, you say, I don't know whether there's a God or not. But if you're a Gnostic, you say, I know something. I know some secret stuff. And their secret stuff that they knew, it was a whole bunch of weird stuff about archons and, and uh, you know, and Jehovah was the arrogant archon and all. It's a bunch of weirdness, but, but the main thing that they knew that they said is that the, the physical world is evil, that your body is evil, and, and so you, gotta, you just need to beat your body, and you need to, to uh, all this, and it was a whole mess, and what it led to was legalism. 
And these people were following a bunch of dietary laws. And look, I mean, if you want to go on Whole30 or you want to do what, I mean, it's great. I don't care what, 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 whatever, you know, diet helps you, it's, it's awesome. But don't confuse that with your relationship with God. God. God's relationship with you is not based on what you eat or don't eat. It's not even based on whether or not you go to church or not. Now, I want you to go to church, otherwise they don't have a job, but, <laughs> but you, can't, you don't go to God and say, well, I went to church this week, so can you please help me with A, B, and C? That's, that's basing your relationship with God on something other than Jesus, on your church attendance or whatever. Now, somebody said, well, I don't know about this grace stuff. I, I, think it's, I think it's the foundation, but I think we ought to move on from it and grow up. Well, look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7 says, that in the ages to come, God might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. So are there still ages to come? And what's God going to be teaching us about in those coming ages? The riches of His grace. Is He going to be teaching you about how you need to give more and attend church more and pray harder? Not really. Now, you need to pray more and you need to go to church and all that, but again, that's not the foundation of your relationship with God. What God's going to teach us through all eternity is the riches of His grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus. All right, so I've beat that into the ground. What does it mean then to have your heart established with grace? That's a great question. Look at Romans chapter 5. For a long time, my heart was not established with grace. And so my relationship with God was like a roller coaster. It was up and down. There was no consistency. But this verse of Scripture, this passage changed my life. Romans 5, 8 through 10 says, God commended His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How many of you are grateful for the revelation that God loved you enough to die for you before you even accepted Him? When you were a sinner, when you were at your absolute worst, God loved you enough to die for you. It's a tremendous revelation. What that teaches people and what it taught me, because I knew this growing up in, in church, is that God loves sinners. How many of you know God loves sinners that don't know? He is not mad at people. God loves people that don't know Him. I was convinced of this as a kid. In fact, I was so convinced of it. I mean, they had, I was 12, and I went on this missions trip to, to this place in Portland, and we stayed at this like halfway house and there's a whole bunch of you know people recovering from drug addiction and there's a homeless shelter and they had me preach at this thing and they had all these people come in off the street and uh, homeless people and drug addicts and stuff and I said I said God loves you and God is not mad at you you need to give your life to Jesus he'll forgive you so I was convinced of that what I wasn't convinced of was that God loved me and had grace for me because I was a Christian. And I knew, see, the people out there, they didn't know 
that God loved him, but I grew up in church, and I've done all my best sinning since I accepted Jesus. I don't even, I don't even remember accepting Jesus. Now, I know that I did, but I mean, I, don't, I, mean, I, prayed the, I remember praying the sinner's prayer, but I was born again before that. I mean, I just was always hanging out with Jesus. But, but it says here in verse 9, so it's amazing in this passage of Scripture, we, we stay on verse 8 and we don't actually finish the point. Because he, his point isn't so much that God loves sinners, he's trying to make a broader point. He says this, he says in verse 9, if God loved people enough to die for them while we were yet sinners, then verse 9, much more than being now justified by his blood, we'll be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were sinners, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we will be saved by his life. If God loved us enough to die for us while we were yet sinners, much more now will he not be mad at us if we have a problem. If he had enough grace for you, if he loved you enough to die for you while you were a God-hater, while you were against him, before you were even born, how much more now will he be patient and gracious and loving towards you that you have accepted him and made him your Lord and Savior? If I am more patient and gracious towards strangers' kids than I am my own, I have a problem. That doesn't mean I don't challenge my kids or correct them or help them grow, but I've got to have grace for my own kids. This is kind of a mean statement, but, but it's a joke. And somebody said, the definition of a brat is somebody else's kid. <laughs> because what you realize if you hang out around a bunch of kids is that you, have, you, tend, to, you, you tend to think your own kid's behavior isn't that bad. <laughs> is that true? <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, look at that other kid, boy. <laughs> anyway, i got to work on that myself. Letter A, if your heart is established on legalism, you'll think that God loves you when you're doing good, but is mad at you or rejecting you when you mess up. And that creates instability, an up and down relationship with God. Romans 8, Paul says, if, uh, he says, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us what? All things. If Jesus loved you enough to die for you when you're yet a sinner, how is he going to withhold something else from you? Doesn't make any sense. But many Christians believe, honestly, if, I mean, they wouldn't say this, but if you see the way, I mean, the way I function in my relationship with God, we tend to believe God loves them less than we love the world, than he loves the world. And I can remember being in my Christian church frustrated that I had to grow up in church because I was like, you know, I've, God's frustrated with me. I wish I'd have just been raised a sinner and I could have given my life to Jesus right before I died and life would have been a lot easier. Well, that's crazy. What that means is I haven't understood the benefits of being a, son, a child of God. I've, I've misconstrued the whole thing. So, 
What does it mean to have your heart established in grace? Number one, God's love for you is not based on anything you do or don't do. God's grace is unconditionally reaching out to you and loving you in your brokenness. How many of you have still had problems since you were a Christian? Okay, thank you for your honesty. I'll raise both my hands. So, so God knows that. And He still has grace for you and is patient with you and helps you and loves you. Secondly, it means that God is not moving in your life based on your performance. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. This is a famous verse of Scripture. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, the great, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. The word saved there is the Greek word soteria or sozo, depending on if it's a noun or a verb. And it means wholeness, soundness, deliverance, healing, prosperity. It means, it means provision for whatever you need. It certainly means salvation for your, from your sins, but it also means God's intervention in your daily life. And it says, does it, does it say, by your prayer you are saved? Does it say, by your church attendance you're saved? Does it say, by your giving you are prospered? Does it say, by your uh, uh, fasting, you are healed? No, it doesn't say any of that. It says that you're saved, that God's intervention in your life is based entirely upon His grace. It all comes to you because Jesus paid for it. In the kingdom, everything is already paid for. That means you can't pay for it. You can try, but there's no debt left. You're saved by grace. 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul says, All the promises of God are in Him, yes, and in Him, amen, to the glory of God by us. God made a ton of promises in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In Jesus, all those promises are said yes to. That means you are not trying to get a yes from God not what prayer is. Prayer is not trying to get God to say yes to what you want. If you're trying to convince Him to say yes to you, you probably don't want the thing that you're praying for. Because if you've got to convince Him, you don't, I mean, you don't want it. Because it's not right for you. Every promise that God's made, everything that you need, Jesus already said yes to it. So in prayer, I'm not, I'm not trying to get, and I, I, you know, I understand sometimes we use this terminology, and so it's, it's fine, but I'm not, I'm not trying to move God. And I'm not trying to get a whole bunch of people together to like, to like bombard heaven with prayer. Now, it's, it's, again, it's fine to have a whole bunch of people pray, but you got to think about the imagery that you're, you're painting when you say things like that. Because if you say, I've got to bombard heaven with my prayer, bombard, that's like a term you use for shooting guns at something. You understand that, right? So, so if I'm bombarding heaven, I've got this picture in my head that heaven is like a fortress, and God's up there, and He don't hardly want to do nothing. 
And so I got I to gotta shoot some cannonballs up there. I got to get enough people to poke some holes in the wall and maybe some blessings will fall out. So I'm not, I'm not criticizing how people pray. I'm just trying to help you see what we're, what we're doing and where our faith is. If, if, you, if you're convinced that, that you want God to move in your life more than God wants to move, there's a problem. God wants to help you more than you want to be helped. Smith Wigglesworth said, he said, I'm not waiting for a move of God, I am a move of God. Now the reason he said that was, was not that he was being arrogant, it's that he latched into this truth that God's, God's always moving, God's always willing to intervene. What I've got to do is just step out in faith and believe that the promises of God are true. And I've seen this in my own life. I don't, I, you know, I've, there have been times I've been praying for people, I don't feel anything. In fact, sometimes I've been praying for people, I feel bad on the inside. I know I'm supposed to like feel like a spiritual giant all the time, but, but, and sometimes I do, but sometimes I'm praying for people, I don't feel nothing. And I feel like, oh, God, I don't know if this is going to work. But it's not, it's not my performance. It's not how I feel. And you just do it anyway. You just do stuff in faith. And I've seen God move again and again and again. I've told you this testimony, but when I, I worked for Andrew Womack and I answered phones for him and I prayed with people. I prayed with people all day long. And I would pray for people in these crisis situations. They're like suicidal or they're, they're emotionally compromised and stuff. And before you do that, you had to take this specialized training. And I thought, this will be awesome. I want to learn what this special training is. And I sat in this room, and they said, okay, here's the training. When you, when you have somebody like this, what you're going to do is you're going you're gonna to help them hear God. You're going to have them ask God a question. Then they're going to listen. God's going to tell them what lies they're believing. You're going to teach them to reject that lie. And then you're going to have them hear the truth, and then... Uh, they'll hear the truth and you have them embrace the truth and that'll fix the situation. And I thought, that sounds crazy. Like you're telling me these people are suicidal, they're emotionally compromised and my whole strategy is to just help have them hear God. What if they can't hear God? Sometimes I'm not emotionally compromised at all. I'm not convinced. I can, I can hear God. And, and I was like, I don't know if this is going to work. To be honest, I didn't have a lot of faith for it, but I'm a man under authority, and that's what they're telling me to do, and so I got on the phone line, and this person, oh, God, my life's falling apart, ah. and I'm like, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray this prayer. We're going to ask God to tell you what lies you're believing, and so we prayed, and then she listed out like four lies that she heard God say, and I'm like, Wow, good job. <laughs> and, then, and, and so we rejected those. And I said, well, th this might be working. And I said, I said, let's ask God what the truth is. And so she prayed, and, and God told her like two things. It was the truth, and it, it was like scripture. It was true. And it was the complete opposite of what she was thinking. She didn't make this stuff. I mean, she was thinking real wrong. And then God intervened and said, no, you ought to think like this. 
And we embraced the truth. And she's like, man, I feel, it's like my whole life's changed. You know, that wasn't because of my great faith. I just obeyed. I just did, I just did what they told me to do. <laughs> but the, the point is, is that we don't, I mean, and that person was compromised, but she wasn't hearing God. You understand? She wasn't hearing God because she was full of faith. She was full of fear. But you don't hear God based on your performance. You hear God based on grace. Hallelujah. Now, look on the back page because i got to balance all this. The second half of the verse says, By grace you are saved through what? Faith. So grace does not remove human agency or choice. We receive by grace through faith. God is faith grace is God's part, faith is ours. But it says even our faith comes from God. The best way I've understood this is it's kind of like if God were to buy you a car. How many of you like it if Jesus bought you a new BMW and it had, you know, I mean, now if Jesus bought it, I mean, I'm sure it's going to be tricked out, so it's got the cooled seats, not just the heated seats, but the cooled ones, praise Jesus, so your back hair don't stick to your shirt, you know, when you, I mean, got the heated steering wheel, you know, and so he buys you this car, and, and, and then he gives you the keys, so the car is like grace, and the keys are like faith. Now, where did the keys come from? God. Jesus gave them to you. So what's, what's your part to play in this whole deal? You've got to take the keys, and you've got to put them in there, and you've got to turn and start the car. That's what faith looks like. It's just using what God gave you. Now, it may not be a lot, but if you'll use what God gives you, it'll multiply. And you just use it, and you just, you just uh, benefit from what God already provided. Now, Jesus, the Bible says in 1 John 2, 2, that Jesus is the propitiation, not of our sins, but also of the, not only our sins, but also the sins of the whole world. That means Jesus bought everybody a brand new BMW. Salvation's a whole package, and he purchased it for everybody. But not everybody benefits. Right? And some people, the scripture says, are going to end up in hell. And that's terrible, but it's not because God wants them to go there. I mean, it's, you just got to reach out and believe. Just put the keys in the ignition. Now, do you understand that you can have a nice BMW, and you can drive it like five miles an hour and never turn on the air conditioning and never listen to the radio? I had this, you know, eclipse for a number of years, and... And it, the rate, the, you know, it had a code on the radio, and the battery died, and I didn't know the code. And so for like a couple years, I didn't have any radio in my car. I had the radio there, but I couldn't listen to it. I couldn't benefit from it, because I didn't know the code. But then I got the code, and then I started to listen to music again. Now, there aren't codes in the kingdom, but the point is that... that the, there, there are laws and principles and the way things operate, and there's buttons to push and stuff. And, and if you figure out how faith works, you can get more benefits from your salvation. You can go a little faster. You don't have to be saved and stuck. 
So that's something of an oversimplification, but you get, you get the picture. Now, sometimes people argue if you're really far into the, into the Reformed side that it's only grace if you don't have to make a choice. And they say that, that using your will to make a choice is some type of, of legalism, and I understand that argument, but I, I don't agree because it, to me it's pretty simple. If somebody buys you a present, if, if I buy you a present, you, ha- you still have to open it. Now, if you open it, I mean, does that mean that you paid for it? No, it doesn't give the, it doesn't give the store, it doesn't give Walmart any more money. But you have to open it to receive the benefit. That's what all faith is, all believing God is, is just, it's just unwrapping the presence under Calvary's tree. So, we do things like pray, lay hands on people, give and worship and act like the promises of God are true, whether we feel like it or not, because in the action, the breakthrough comes. In the action, the breakthrough comes. The reason I lay hands on the sick and pray for them is not because me doing that convinces God to move. It's not because me doing that impresses God and, and earns me something. The reason I do it is because it's an act of faith, and it unwraps the present. The reason I give, I don't, I don't give to get anything from God. I don't give to get blessed, but I believe I am blessed. I really believe it, and you know how you can tell that I believe it, because if you look at my checkbook, I'm a giver. That's how you can tell. Now, if, 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 if you don't believe it, don't feel bad about it. Just change what you believe. God loves you, all right? God loves us wherever we are. Okay, hallelujah. So prayer is about believing God, not convincing God. If we have to convince God of something, we're probably trying to get something that's not healthy. All right, last point here. This is... A pretty profound one. Grace means that we're required to dream big because we're not limited by our own abilities. I've uh, talked about this at length other places, but heaven comes to earth through the fulfilled dreams of God's people. I believe heaven wants to come down here, but it has to come down through people. And the way we can partner with God in that is to dream His dreams with Him. So you got to dream big because it's not your effort that's going to cause it to come to pass. So I want to show you how, how big you're supposed to dream. Everybody ready for this? It's kind of intense. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 22, Paul says, actually let's read verse 21. It says, Let no man glory in men, for all things are yours. Everything already belongs to you. Like what? Well, Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. Now, it's important to note that the past is not listed there because the past was purchased by the blood of Jesus and it's illegal for you to look at it apart from His blood. But notice he says, all things are yours, things that are present, or things to come. 
The implication here is that there are things that are out in your future that you are currently the owner of. Mary had a little bit of an understanding of this. At the wedding feast, they run out of wine, and Mary comes to Jesus and says, they're out of wine, can you fix it? And Jesus says, no, it's not the right time. And Mary says, yeah, but could you do it anyway? And the crazy part is, Jesus says, okay, I guess we'll change the plan. That'll, that'll rock your theology. <laughs> I want to suggest to you that there are things that may be reserved for the future that we're allowed to believe for in the present. This takes away my excuses to think small. Because you might say, well, Pat, you know, I mean, I'm trying to use this personally because it's like, well, you know, I believe we're going to get a great building. It's in, the, it's in the future. And so I'm being patient. We're going to be patient for however long, but, but I can believe for that thing to accelerate. I don't have an excuse not to believe because it's all, I already own it. In the spirit realm. Now let me show you something else. Isaiah chapter 2. This is more of a global issue. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2 and 3. This is a tremendous promise. It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the, Lord of, of the Lord's house will be established in the top of the mountains and will be exalted above the hills, and all the nations shall flow unto it. And many people will go and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Okay, that's a tremendous promise. It says that um, in the last days that the world is going to come to the church because we're going to be such a, a force of wisdom and blessing to people. Now, the, the theological question is, when does that occur? And so there's various theological systems, and a lot of them say, well, it's not going to occur till later. And what I want to suggest to you is that even if it's not going to occur till later, that doesn't give me an excuse not to believe for it now. Because I possess in the present what, is our, it's what already exists in the future. Now, I mean... Obviously, this will take on a new dimension when Jesus returns, but I don't have an excuse not to believe that the church can be raised up in such glory that, you know, I believe in going out and, and talking to people, but I also believe that the church can become such a place of glory and breakthrough that people are like, boy, I need to come to your church. I need to get, I need to, you know, when I worked for Pastor Lawson in Colorado Springs, we had a, 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 a oncologist that didn't go to our church, an oncologist is a cancer doctor, he didn't go to our church, but he sent patients to our church for us to pray for them. Because he, I mean, I, you know, there were a bunch of people being healed of cancer, and he said, well, you know what, you ought to go over there. It can't hurt anything. 
Well, hallelujah. Well, what if so many people's marriages get fixed that the world starts thinking, you know what, I ought to get, I ought to get right with Jesus so my marriage can be fixed. You know, one of the things I love about Dave Ramsey is he helps people's finances get fixed, and he does it in a kingdom way. And there's tons of people that come to Dave Ramsey that are not Christians, but he's a source of wisdom, and he helps them. And many of them become Christians as a result. Hallelujah. Now, let's balance it one more time, and then I'll be done. Here's the, the struggle I have, all right, is that I'm trying to dream big and believe God, but when you... When you dream big, you, you start to look at it, and if you're not careful, you can think, what have I got to do to make this work? Right? And, we, and you get back into performance, and you start stressing about whether you're doing everything right. And so as we dream big, we remind ourselves it's not our fleshly efforts that make our dreams come true. It's God working in us and through us. And everybody said amen. All right. Um, let's all stand up. If I could get my prayer team to come down here. I'm going to pray for everybody.